Talking with the great Sharna Halpern, I get the sense that the head of I.O. and one of the pioneers of long-form improvisation has at this point in her life actually achieved a level of peace and satisfaction. That's not to say she was tortured before or that she's coasting now, but after years of getting kicked out of venues, 14 of them to be exact, and being chronically overshadowed by places like Second City, UCB, and even the memory of her own legendary business partner, Del Close, the time has come for Sharna and I.O. to finally get their due. Maybe the biggest piece of evidence? The New York Times, which to my mind is not normally given to hyperbole, called her the hidden architect of modern comedy. When I bring that up to her in our conversation, she smiles appreciatively and says, I don't know about hidden. Then she follows with, I'm never satisfied. That said, it must be very satisfying to have helped start the careers of people like Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Adam McKay, Chris Farley, Andy Richter, Cecily Strong, A.D. Bryant, Vanessa Bayer. It must feel good to be Lorne Michaels' go-to when he's looking for new SNL talent. And it must be both amazing and harrowing to have gone from operating in back rooms of bars to first a successful Wrigleyville location, followed by the current I.O. home a relatively new $7 million comedy club, school, bar, and talent launcher located on Kingsbury Street in Chicago, right across the street from the world's largest Whole Foods. That Whole Foods is where I went to get her a frappuccino with milk that she could enjoy during our conversation about comedy and truth and Dell and mafiosa landlords and stars in the making, and that time she went to Switzerland to save the world by teaching improvisation to physicists at the European Organization for Nuclear Research. No joke. As I waited for her in the Mission Theater inside I.O., where we would record our conversation, I have to be honest, I was a little nervous. Then she walked in, and I was immediately charmed. And then, somehow, all I wanted to do was make her laugh. I wanted her to like me. And it dawned on me, this is exactly how every young improviser who goes through that place must feel. Coming up, my conversation with Sharna Halpern. I'm Ron Lazaretti, and this is the Hog Butcher Radio Hour. Well, thank you for taking the time to do this. Everybody I told I was going to talk to Sharna, they're like, wow, you're going to talk to her? And, and I have to admit, I'm, I'm a little nervous. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, why, why I'm am nervous, I, too. Why am I nervous? <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to take off my earrings, too. Hang on. Oh, we started it. What, 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 what's going on? <laughs> what's going on in here? with the headphones. I'm just getting undressed. <laughs> Hang on. I'm just going to take off my blouse. Is that okay? Listen, it's your place. Okay, good. All right. I like to be comfortable when I, I do these things. That's important. So I walk in, I've been here many times, but I walk into the place thinking I'm going to talk to you today, and I, and I think, holy crap, look what you've built. I mean, <laughs> does, it, does it ever, you know, you had humble beginnings by all accounts I've read. Do you ever walk in here and go, like, it's like that talking heads, how did I get here? Uh, every day. Every day, you know, 39 years went by like that, you know, and um, 
and you tend to forget. I guess it's like pregnancy. It's such it's so painful, but then you know you want to do it again. So uh, I've been through a lot of hell, but yeah, I come in here and I just can't believe this place. And I see people eating and drinking and hanging out in the beer garden, and I see four packed theaters, and I'm like, I can't believe it's I.O. I can't believe it's I.O. And sometimes I'll sit out like if it's nice out in the outside, I'll be in the beer garden with a glass of champagne and my sandals off and my feet up on a on a chair, and I'm like, I can't believe this is I.O. It's Every, it's very hard to get through because, like you said, I've been through hell. I've been thrown out of 14 different places. Is and, that true? Oh, sure. And there's a great... Uh, well, Since the 80s, yeah. I mean... Just thrown out. Well, yeah. I mean, I played in back of people's bars, you know, so a lot of the places were like, you know what? We make more money on bands. Your audiences don't become incoherent. They have to listen and pay attention, so... We don't make a lot of money on booze, and, you know, so I've been thrown out. I was at Cross Currents, and one guy... I guess he was doing drugs and he couldn't pay his bills, so he got booted out. So, of course, I got booted out. And, uh, yeah, just a lot of different clubs had different stories. There was one club called Chow that was actually run by the Mafia, and they were actually the best owners I ever worked with because they were really nice to us. They fed us all the time. They liked my dog. But then one, the guy who ran the place had to go to jail. He was taking a rap. He told me not to feel bad about it. He was making a lot of money, and he would find me when he got out. And I was like, okay. So I had to leave and <laughs> go find another place. And, uh, yeah, Favreau found the next place, which was Papa Milano's. And that guy thought he was in the mafia. <laughs> he wasn't, and he was a creep. Uh, so there was just, you know, one story after another where we were just constantly, like, gypsies, you like know, starting well, in like 1981, starting around that time. Yeah, we started out first. First, it was good for a while. Actually, I started, if you want to know the truth, at ETC at Second City. That's, oh, really? It was just an empty room, and Joyce let me start there. And then, it, then it started taking on a life of its own. And I was sharing the space with Paul Sills, and she said, "You know what? Now you're ready to go on your own." I helped you get started, and then I found a place across the street called the Exit Club, which was this punk rock place where you know. After 10 o'clock, all the people with green hair came out, and we had to get out of there. So, yeah, then I found Cross Currents, and I was there for about seven years. That was a good place. But then the guys started doing coke or something, and they just lost it. They lost the place. Then I moved to a few other places at the tracks. That didn't last. He didn't last. It wasn't necessarily us. Um, and, you know, we were getting decent little crowds because... Farley had such a huge family, so his whole family would come. There'd be 20 people just with him alone, and then Pat Finn, who you know from the middle, he's mm -hmm. like the neighbor. He, yep. um, His family is also huge. They're these big Irish Catholic families. So just between Farley and Finn, on the weekends, we'd have 50, 60 people. It would all be their family. So any extra people was icing on the cake. So we weren't doing terribly, thanks to the Farleys and the Finns. But, <coughs> excuse me. Um, yeah, the club owners just... I kept saying, you don't understand. I have people here who are going to be famous soon. These are some of the funniest people in the world. And nobody would believe me. You know, they just kept saying, who cares? You know, I'm not making money right now. And they threw me out. And I understand that now because I'm on the, both sides of the fence. Sure. You know, you have to make money. You have to be able to pay your bills. You can't tell the bank, well, I got the funniest people here. So, you know, I understand it. I, I have no bitter <laughs> uh, feelings toward those people. And I showed them. I was right. You know? Right. And, and did... Did, at what point did it, you feel like you were a little more home free? 1995. Okay. That was when I found my place on Clark Street. That was actually uh, my cousin. He's the one who owned all the real estate on Clark Street that he just sold. They could put up all these things now. Um, he called me one day and he said, 
I, this could be a lucky day. Come meet me at 3541 North Clark. And I walked in, and there's a bar downstairs, and there's a bar upstairs. And he said, I will buy this if you like it, but you have to pay the mortgage. And at the time, I think it was 3000 a month. I, it was like, I longed for those days, although I was having a nervous breakdown because I was lucky if I made 50 bucks a week. So I would wake up in a panic attack, like, how am I going to make 3000 a month? You know, ah, those were the good days. <coughs> well, you do romanticize those days. Oh, sure. I miss a lot of that. I miss the old place. It was really cute and quaint, but not as much fun as this. I mean, I could come in here every night, and if I don't want to watch a show, I could just sit by the bar and see people or walk in the beer garden and see people and, and right. have fun. You know, there's always something going on. Where the other place, I was kind of trapped. It was either one theater or the other. That was it. Right, right. Um, it's funny because I was looking at a, an article, and Andy Richter... Oh, you said something in an earlier piece that at some point... When you get thrown out of the place in the early days, Andy Richter would call and say, where are we going? I got the set in the truck. <laughs> That's right. You know, He had a, a little flatbed pickup truck, and he would just go with Pete Hulney and get the set, go, where are we going next? And uh, it was really cute. He claims that that's the only reason he was on a team is because he had the truck, but actually he was very, very funny, very funny boy. Um, but, yeah, but 1995 is, like I said, it's when I had my own home. And when I had my own home, people took it seriously, and suddenly there were lines down the block, and it was – that was a big step. Right. And and so who was, uh, I feel like at some point, I maybe you read that you said that that was, you felt like that was kind of a golden age for It was, for it you. was. Who, Every, who was coming through there at that point? Everyone was there at the same time. It was, uh, it was people like Andy Richter, uh, Brian Stack, who writes for Colbert, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, David Koechner, Adam McKay, Neil Flynn, um, some of the funniest people in the world were all there together and the shows were always packed because everyone wanted to see these people so it was just an amazing time it was um the shows were not only hilarious but we had so much fun you know all the ucb people that were with amy mm -hmm. at the time um before ucb was ucb <coughs> horatio tim Keck, tim kechner tim tim meadows before he married dave kechner um <laughs> Oh, gosh. I know it'll keep coming into me. You know, yeah. Stephanie Weir, Bob Dassey. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. It was just it was just incredible. So what, how is your and what you do different then than what you're doing now? And let's let's start. Actually, let's start out. Let's go back. What the hell are so, you doing? And no, and no. And like, <laughs> like, especially when you started, what was this? I think around 81. What was improv olympic at that point and how did it evolve over the years well in, in the beginning and i would say like 1980 it was just improv games this is before i met dell and uh i was just doing dell close right this is before i met dell close sorry mm -hmm. um i was just doing short form games there was nothing else to do so improv olympic was a competition and uh twice a year i do the big finals at second city and stuff like that now this is before all those people came this was a different era mm -hmm. and um I started getting tired of it. I just thought like a lot of the same jokes were being used and there just had to be something more than games, you know, and that's when I found Dell. And um, that's a funny story too. It's kind of a, it's in my movie that I'm writing. Um, yeah, I heard he used to badmouth me because he didn't like games, you know, and he was already starting to work on something better. He just, uh, in the 60s, he was working on this thing called a Herald with the committee. And it was basically this long thing that went on forever. There was no structure. It was unteachable and unplayable. Um, but I had heard that uh, he was the genius in improv, so I sought him out. It was Halloween, and I heard he was doing a show at the, this art gallery 
So I went to talk to him about maybe teaching a class just to see what I could steal, what I could learn, you know. And uh, he was in his robes because unbeknownst to me, he was a witch, a pagan. And he had, you know, his robes and his magic wand and his candles and he was invoking the demons and the gods from the north and whatever he was doing. And I was meditating at that time and I, I uh, remember our teacher at TM telling us, white light yourself protect yourself from outside demons whatever so I was horrified at what he was doing and instantly angry and then when the thing was over I went up to him and I said you had a lot of nerve invoking demons with these without protecting these people and he said I protected the building and I was like you can't do that and he was like yes I can and I just was like huh. I walked out in a huff you know and uh then I went back to cross currents and just sat down and immediately realized I screwed up bad. Like I, now I just blew my one chance to fix things here. So a few weeks later, um, I saw him in cross currents having coffee, and I thought, well, I hear he's always high. He doesn't remember people. He's not going to remember me. <laughs> so I went up to him and I said, hey, and I thought here's a way to entice him. I said, how'd you like to make two hundred bucks in some pot? And he said, huh? What do I got to do? That's my bad Del Close impression. And I said, just teach one three-hour class. And he said, huh, can I do anything I want? And I said, yeah. And he goes, can I invoke demons? So I said, yeah, sure, you can invoke demons. And um, so he taught a class that week, and he was brilliant. And it just, it just amazed us. You know, it just exposed the secrets of the universe to us. And we went out for coffee afterwards, and I just told him how I was sick of the games, that there had to be something better for improvisation. And he thought, well, Maybe you're not a twin after all. So I said, thanks, gee, great. And uh, he told me about the Herald, and he said maybe if we could work together and take some of your games and plug them into my long meta game, maybe we can come up with something that's teachable and playable. And um, I was like, yes, that's great. And I was just so excited that he was willing to like not work at Second City anymore. He, he didn't care about money. He didn't care about Second City. He just cared about the work. That was the thing about him that amazed me. He was so passionate about it. So I was willing. He said, will you shut down your theater? I said, yes, I will do it. Oh. Then he said, I'll leave Second City then if you do that. And I was like, all right. And he started teaching. And, you know, I started learning how to teach from him. You know, it, it wasn't until maybe close to a year that he said to me, okay, I'm teaching a lot of the same things over and over again because people kept joining his class. Mm -hmm. He said, I don't want to have to, I want to be able to go forward now. So you need to you've been watching me you need to teach this stuff before people get to me upstairs at a different day so you can still come to classes so I I said, okay so that's how it became level one and level two you know uh, and then eventually we had to add a third teacher because there were so many classes and uh, so it, it, it just started growing and growing as a school what and, was the Herald when you first met him and what did it become after you met him? Well, when I first saw it a long time ago, and I had only seen it once, um, kind of sitting in and spying on his workshop, it was just this long play, long thing of different scenes. That it, there was no time limit. It could go on for hours. And um, they were just, they were the pioneers. You know, the committee were the pioneers. They were really inventing, trying to figure out what it is. And so was Baron Barracudas. They were my first Herald team and they were pioneers too because they had nothing to look at like teams now could come in and, into a class and I'd say watch the shows and do it like that and they go oh okay like that I could do that well there was no one to watch okay. right so um, 
we started experimenting with the Barons, and, and, and we decided that one of my favorite games that I had at the Improv Olympic, which later became I.O., was the Time Dish. It was a right. three-part scene with beginning, middle, and end, so something can further. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm sorry. I just, Not at all. I just got over being sick, and I haven't quite gotten over it. So <coughs> um, we decided that three Time Dishes would be the body of this thing, so... He envisioned it being like Love Boat. You have these different storylines that kind of come together <laughs> oh, to that's be great. one big story, and they start to interconnect. So big connections and callbacks and the ideas weaving together sure. was ba- the basis of our work and still is. is connections are where all the surprises are. Um, that You have no idea that these two people are going to be the people that connect right. with that scene. It's just great. It's so much fun. It's a, it's like, it's like a Rorschach test. You know, you look at it, you go, I don't know what that is, and all of a sudden you go, oh, it's two people kissing. I thought it was a vase. You know what I mean? So, uh, it's that effect of, oh, I see. So, uh, yeah, and then we kind of peppered it with monologues and other games and an opening, so we could kind of find our thesis statement as a group, like what right. is this piece going to be about? So we're not going into it blind. What are we saying? So yeah, we kind of found it. We found it, and we got better and better at it. Is Improv Olympic and ultimately I.O. in some ways a reaction to the fact that there weren't, that even a place like Second City is, uh, has some roots in improvisation, but ultimately isn't, no, improvisation is not the, what they're really no, selling No, no, in fact, uh, no, they're, they're sketch. They are, it's totally different. It's written, it's a written show. And it's not a judgment call, it's just different. Um, they... Uh, in fact, Bernie, years ago, that was Dell and Bernie's big fight forever and ever, was that Bernie felt that improvisation was merely a tool to create Second City shows, and it was not an art form and not something people should pay to come into. And Dell's big thing was it's an art form. And Bernie, ugh, I mean, whenever somebody would finally write about us, we were so underground, you know, they'd go interview Bernie, and Bernie would go, nah, it's not anything that you should want to watch. I'm like, ah, oh, please, jump on your own bandwagon, for God's sakes. And, uh, and he would never come to a show, except finally he came to TJ and Dave, and he went, well, hmm, this is, this is a good show. But, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, they, he did so not believe think, in improvisation as an art form at all. Do you think he ultimately saw the light, like, after well, seeing TJ and Dave? Well, I don't think Dave he did, or? because I'll tell you, we had a big party for Dell. Dell had a living wake, yes, which I I'm remember. sure we'll talk about later. And I was very upset with Bernie, because he came to say goodbye, and there's Dell with his air hose, in his nose and he's exhausted and people are saying thank you and Bernie walks up to him and Dell said it's an art form and Bernie said well just for tonight Dell and I was like uh couldn't you say you're right you didn't waste your life you know because it's true and couldn't you just give in you know and Dell just was like just so dejected and there's a picture in the Sun-Times actually a a big picture of me and Bill Murray because we're looking at each other we're both on each side of Dell looking at each other like I don't believe this shit and that was what that was a picture of yeah there's a picture of me and uh, me and Bill Murray really pissed (laughs) that that Bernie would do that I mean it's like the last breath came out of Dell like oh man (laughs) he won't give in even now come on we have such a huge theater all these stars have come out of this theater you can't admit it you know Tell me a little bit about Dell, like leading up to because he had kind of a career, right? You know, doing out in L.A., being on oh, yeah. situation comedies, doing things like that. I mean, where where did he kind of start, and how did his career evolve? 
Well, he was an actor first and, and an improviser, and he was in Compass and all those beginning things. He directed Second City for many, many years. Then he started acting, and um, he did uh, plays with um, Peter Falk and Elaine May. He did a play, and the, my, the name of the play escapes me, and I know someone will be able to tell us what it is in a minute. Um, he did many movies. He was in... Um, he I remember was in, him in Get Smart. Oh yeah, even back then he yeah, was in Get Smart. Yeah, sure, I remember that too. And uh, gosh, yeah, I mean he's all over the place. You know, he was the voice of Baron Barracuda. That's why Baron Barracuda has that name. Yeah, because he was <laughs> I'm the greatest creature in the sea. I mean, so everybody who might be listening to this has been affected by Dell in some way, even as a child growing up. You, you know, he he might have been the voice of some animation. That right. You, you know, so he was doing everything. You know, he was in the Blob. He was in. The Untouchables. He was in many, many movies. Um, I have a beautiful picture of him from The Big Town, which he uh, was in with Matt Dillon. And Matt Dillon's an artist. And so during a break one day, Matt Dillon did this picture of Dell and framed it, gave it to him, and Dell gave it to me, and it's in my living room, and it's amazing. It's amazing. So uh, that's my big thing from Matt Dillon. Um, and Dell became kind of a an icon for people, and like Bill Murray and John oh, Belushi yeah. and all that. What were they drawn to there? I think that he, he, he was a genius. He was um, an amazing director. You know, he really kind of helped people find themselves on stage <coughs> because he took the work so seriously and he helped them to become stars, you know. So the, he had the truth. That's why I wrote the book Truth and Comedy. He had the truth. And um, all these people who worked with him loved him. You know, Bill Murray loved him. That's why that, that big party at the end, which we'll probably never have to talk about because I keep sneaking it in. Uh, <laughs> You know, when, when when the hospital told me, you know, he's got like another night, Bill said, all right, let's have a big party. I'll pay for everything, get the finest caters, and, I'll be f and he flew in, and we got saxophone players. I mean, it was hilarious. It was hilarious. I said, Bill, we're going to get thrown out of the hospital. The party's in the hospital. How many I, people do you think you had there? There were probably about 100. Oh, wow. People came in. Harold Ramis was there. All these people just flew in to say goodbye and thank him. And uh, it was uh, a great night. And we had, uh, in fact, it was Everything about Dell was magical. He told me that he not only wanted his party, but he wanted um, a ceremony, a pagan ceremony, ceremony from the high priest or priestess um, to, to send him on his path. And so I was in the hallway of the hospital going, how am I supposed to find a high priest and priestess? And this guy, this intern happens to walk by. He goes, I'm sorry, I couldn't help overhearing, but I'm a high priest. Do you want me to bring a high priestess? We can be there tomorrow. And I'm, Do you want us in garb? And I'm like... <laughs> Yeah, please. And it was like, it took two and a half seconds. And I was like, it was just magical. Everything was just, it just worked out so beautifully. It was a great party. But he he also sounds like he would have been a difficult person over time, especially if you were in business with him or in collaboration with him. Could he be? Well, yes. I think that's why we worked so well together. Uh, I knew how far I could push him, and he knew how far he could push me. And um, so I knew when to give up, and he knew when to give up. Uh, he wasn't, he was, first of all, as far as a teacher, he was a very good nurturing teacher. He would, he would never yell at you. He'd be very funny. You know, he might tell a funny story about what you're doing. Um, unless you're being mean to somebody, he might be a little smarmy. Like I remember, uh, and Matt Besser tells this story too, and I actually remember it. <coughs> Excuse me. She said choking. <laughs> um, <laughs> Don't Matt, forget. Do you Matt need something was, else to drink? No, no, I'm okay. good. Matt was on stage. Matt's from the UCB. 
and mm-hmm. uh, and like I said, different people would join the classes, so you'd have different levels of performers. Some were better than the others, and Matt was on stage with some newer people, and Dell stopped this piece, and he said to Matt, excuse me, I want to know something. Do you think you're better than the other people on stage? And Matt said, yes. He goes, it shows. So it was that kind of a person. He would be very, you know, he would never be mean. Right. Unless you were hurting or doing something to somebody, he would say, fuck off, turkey, get the fuck out of here. And here's, I remember one time, he, he, for some reason, he didn't like some woman, and he just took out his checkbook and wrote her a check. And, I, and at that time, we were very small, so people were paying me in increments, you know. So I said, Del, she didn't even pay it. And he was like, I don't care. It was worth it just to get rid of her. And I was like, just don't give people money back, please. Um, so, uh. He, he wasn't, you know, actually, I, I had fun working with him, but he wasn't really difficult. Like, there were times he would pull things that would get me mad, but, like, one time, he, you know, he was a big, uh, he was very mystical. He was very big into throwing the I Ching. You've heard of the I Ching. It gives you the way to think and to progress in your life. And he came to class one day, and he got on stage and said, well, I threw the I Ching, and it said that I'm done with my work here. So I'm moving on. I'm leaving I.O. or Improv Olympic. So thank you all very much. And he walks out, and I'm like, what the fuck was that? So I go back to his house and I'm yelling at him. I'm like, you have a lot of nerve. I said, first of all, you should always talk to me. This is my company too. And I said, secondly, that's not necessarily what it means. So we talked about the different things. I said, this is all an interpretation. Maybe you're done with the Herald, but that doesn't mean you're done with this life, with this <laughs> art. And then he was like, huh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. And then he was back in class the next day. But So I had to go through a lot of shit like that. Right. Um, <coughs> here's the biggest one. We... Um, we were uh, we were in the New York Times for those comedy competitions I used to do, and Michael Douglas, not, not the talk show host, but the Michael Douglas, uh, called and he said he wanted to do a TV show, a comedy, before whose line is it anyway? That oh. type of thing, and wanted me to come out with Dell and direct it, and uh, it was going to be directed by um, or produced by the guy who did Putting on the Hits. His name was Chris Beard, Putting on the Hits. So we're in this big business meeting with all these uh, Hollywood people and that's what Chris mentions Chris Beard and Chris is sitting there and Dell says no I don't want to work with any cheese heads and so I'm like horrified like here's Michael Douglas and all these people and an opportunity for a TV show you know and he's like no thank you and I'm like uh, I'm kicking him under the table I said Dell let's just listen to this he goes putting on the hits Sharna and I was like Dell let's just listen to them he goes but Putting on the hits, really? <laughs> like, oh my God! So I had to actually ask them to give us a break and take Della out in the hallway and just like, just shut up and listen to it. Just listen to them, you know. Let's just see what they want. Maybe we could do something cool. Maybe we could override them. And he's like, oh yeah, they're gonna tell you you're the director, and then they're gonna fire your best people, and you know, which they did, because I finally did get the job, and um, they fired Keckner, <laughs> Farley, uh, Noah, who's great, and. Um, Pete Gardner, who's on My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. The, the funniest people, they fired him. And, um, <laughs> because they were too smart. And they had such contempt for the audience, they felt like, you, you can't, it's too smart. And then Farley said to me, forgive me, but I'm gonna have to do whatever I can to keep the job. And I said, okay, do what you gotta do. And he pulled, off his, pulled up his shorts real tight into the crack of his ass and jumped around with his fingers up his nose. And they were laughing hysterically. And I was like, oh my God, this is sad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Did you did you ever you performed correct? Uh huh. For many many years. And did you have aspirations? Well, you know, it, no. It was different because when I was performing, 
no one would even look at us. No agents would even consider giving work to an improviser. We weren't actors, you know. So we didn't have the connections with agents. I didn't have Lauren Michaels come here to look at us, you know. So I just felt this was just fun. And my way of making money would be to teach and start a little theater so I could keep doing it. And uh, it wasn't until later in life, unfortunately, that I started making all these contacts that suddenly Lauren was coming and agents realized, oh, you have to have improv experience. We've got to hook up with IO. So now it's like I look back now and I'm 65. And I'm like, God damn. <laughs> <laughs> what if this were happening when I was in my 20s? I totally there would be an IO. Right. Because I'd be worried about me probably because really, I mean, everyone I, I just want people to know. I mean, it wasn't like I was some altruistic person. I just wanted a place to play. That was my only reason for doing it. Because when I read about um, David Shepard's idea for Improv Olympic in Canada, which was this comedy competition, I thought, well, I've got a team, and Dan Castellaneta's got a team, and uh, Frank Farrell has a team for the Improvised Shakespeare team. And I thought, I could put together this competition, I could rent a space, and we could all perform every week. And that was, that was it, you know? Right. It's a very put a show on in a barn mentality. Yeah, exactly. Isn't it? It's all it was a place to play. And. Is that what it still is? No, not for now. Yeah. Not, you know, then, I started, then I started working with Dell, And mm-hmm. then I started realizing the amazing things that could happen and how exciting it was. And, and I also started realizing that we're really saving people's lives. You know, this was a home for misfits. You know, I mean, I get letters over the years that you just can't believe. There was one, and I think he wouldn't mind. I won't say his name, but I'll tell you. I, you know, I do a lot of corporate work, and I was hired by a guy from Ameritech to teach a corporate workshop. Excuse me, I'm going to cough again. That's right. <clears throat> and um, he hired me a couple of times. He really loved it for his company, and he was very good at it. Then he decided to take classes himself at I.O., and then he actually loved it so much he started performing at I.O., and then he quit Ameritech, which I was really mad at him because like, he was one of my best clients at the time. And uh, then he met someone here, got married, and moved to another city, and now he's actually got his own little theater. And he wrote me after he left. He said, I want you to know that I was going to commit suicide when I was working at Ameritech. He goes, I was so unhappy. And I'm not saying it's because of Ameritech. He was just an unhappy right. person. Right. And he goes, I really, really contemplated suicide heavily and it wasn't until I met you and started doing this work that my life changed. And I thank you because I would not be alive today. And he goes, now you just really need to know that I'm serious. And and I've heard other people tell me that too. Like, you changed my life. You you, you just totally changed. And, and this was so special about this place. I mean, People meet each other and they celebrate each other's differences. And there are people here that probably in no other walk of life would be friends. You know, like there's this one guy who's really funny, but he's this tall, big, dorky guy. And, but he's just so funny. But if he came up to this girl that he just married in a bar, she probably wouldn't have given him the time of day, you know. And uh, they're married because he's so adorable. He, there was a place for him to where his personality could shine through, where his brilliance could shine through. And so that kind of thing happens here. There's just this incredible family that stays for years and years. I mean, really, people do not leave. They're, you know, I'm working with Rich Tellerico, who just got an sure. Emmy for Key and Peele, and he's helping me with my script. And you know, these people just, it's, it's a family. These tenets really bond you together, and people just, it's such a great philosophy that people stick with it. It's kind of like we will always help each other. We will always be there for each other. We're always taking care of each other on and off the stage. And these, it, it's those special people that believe in it and stick with it. And then even when they move on, it's like, well, now what can we do? Well, let's come back sure. and get back to the theater. Like for my anniversary show, all the stars come back, all on their own dime. I mean, 60 stars like Mike Myers, Amy Poehler, you know, Anna McKay, Neil Flynn. 
every single one of them. And, and agents were calling me being angry. Like Andy Richter's agent called me like, why are they doing this? Are you telling me that Andy's not the only one not getting paid? I'm like, no one's getting paid. Well, why are they doing it? And I was like, yeah, I know. You couldn't possibly understand, you know, because they make a lot of money for appearances. And they're flying in on their own dime. And they're, why? Although I did put them up in a beautiful hotel. But, but that's just the point. I said, it's like Thanksgiving. Your family expects you to come home. Everyone comes home. And is it possible for you to still have those kinds of connections and with people who are currently at I given how big it is now yeah. and um, a lot it's, of it? It's not as easy. Um, there are so many people here. I don't know as many people, and I'm not as close with because before, you know, my Christmas parties used to be in my living room and in my yard. Sure. And now they're like this whole building. We have to shut down in a forty thousand square foot building. And there are times I look at people and I'm like, so where are you from? I've seen you. Who are you? And then there are a lot of people I do know, like on my top teams, my top sure. performers I work with that I'm very close with. Um, so it, it's, 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 it's still happening. Like Alex Moffat just got hired by right. Saturday Night Live, and right. I put him up in our auditions for Lauren. And So it's still happening because they still have to come to me eventually if they want to be seen so that I could start putting them out there for agents and stuff. So I still get to know them. But it is harder. I mean... I'm not as close as, as I was back then with all the people that I am now. Sure, yeah. how could you? And and it's and I'm also so much older. So before I was in their peer group, you know, when it was Keckner and Adam, you know, Adam lived with me. P.S. Boise lived with me. Um, <coughs> we were all so close. Right. But now, you know, there are people who are afraid to talk to me, you know. Why is that? Because I.O. grew to be this thing and I became this name. It's hard for me to even understand, you know. Like when I travel uh, and I do workshops and people will say, can I have a selfie with you? And they put their arm around me and I put my arm around them and they're shaking. I feel them shaking. I'm like, what the hell is going on? What are you shaking for? And it's like, well, it's just amazing that I'm sitting next to you. So it's like, but that wasn't happening when I was with Amy Poehler and Tina. And, right. You know, we were all we were all struggling together. We were. But your influence has been yeah, felt. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like exactly, when yeah. the New York Times writes an article and the headline is she's the hidden architect of modern comedy. Yeah. That's, that's a big deal. That's really nice. I don't know if I'm hidden. Of course, well, I'm never satisfied with anything. Well, well of course. But, and now that you're in the New York Times, you're yeah. not hidden. Yeah. That's for sure. But I mean, well, there, but there may have been, you know, maybe you weren't getting your total yeah, due. Yeah, I, I see what he's saying. He, and it's right, because he, he believed, this writer, that UCB kind of usurped a lot of the um, myth. Like, they've kind of made it look like Dell was with them when Dell was really with me, and they were with me, you know. Right. And, uh, and it's not even only the UCB kids. Like, a lot of the New York papers, they don't really bother to fact check, you know. So I've read stories, UCB, this is where Anna McKay was trained, and Horatio Sands and Tim Meadows. It's like, well, no, nah, that's not true. But, you know, what are you going to do? Sure. It's, the stories get changed. So so he felt like this is this has to be put to rest. The truth has to come out. You know, right. That was his thing, so. Well, that must have felt... Yeah, it did feel good. I it mean, nice. it, that's that means something, right? Yes, absolutely. He did a good job. For as much as you work to... And let me ask you, the SNL thing, that's a regular, I presume that's a regular kind of thing where Mm -hmm. they come through every however many months. Sometimes it's a year, sometimes it's twice a year. This year it was twice a year. Is it, there's so much, I mean, especially reading the book, and there's so much that you learn in a place like this that you can apply in so many ways. Do you sometimes wonder if the SNL thing is too singularly the prize. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, well, I try to make it clear to everyone that it is not the only path. Not at all. And a lot, and you know, it's frustrating for me. Sometimes 
in many cases, I should say, the best and the funniest people aren't even auditioning because um, you have to write five minutes and they're the best improvisers. And I beg Lauren, I go, let me, let me just put up an improv show for you. You could see the funniest people, but that doesn't help them. He wants to see characters. He wants so what, to do, see you, what do you look for? Well, what I do is I, I, who's got a strong audition, who's a good writer, who does different characters and who could fit in that show. And, um, and then there are some people that just don't and they don't even try. So, you know, basically I've been pretty good at figuring it out. Right. You know, like I showed them Keckner long ago. I actually put up, not a lot of people know this, but I actually put up Tina and Amy when I put up Keckner many, many years ago and he didn't pay attention to them. They were very new. They right, were scared, sure. You know, but um, I did say to him, watch out for these girls. I did say that long before and he's like, okay. And then he hired Keckner, uh, which I knew he would. Um, and uh, firing Keckner was actually a big mistake, but it was good for Keckner in the long run. Um, what else? What else? Uh, but but all the people that I put up, like Vanessa and Cecily, you know, right. I, I could just tell they've got what he's looking for, you know. And, and Vanessa, excuse me, not Vanessa, Cecily, she was my box office manager. And um, I had just done, what I do is I usually do like three months of auditions. Every Monday night, I'll watch like 15 people for three months. So I give everyone a chance because you never know. Sometimes a good student comes up and they're ready, you know. So I don't say no to anyone. So I really go through hell watching, and then I have to decide who the best 15 are for Lauren to see. So this one year, I had just finished my last audition of the three months, and I happened to pass the box office, and there's Cecily. And I was like, Cecily, you didn't audition for me. How come? She goes, well, I have some stuff, but it's not quite ready, and I don't know. I thought I'll wait till next year, because everyone wants to be ready. Otherwise, he might sure. not see you again. Right. So I said, and she's so good. She was on my musical team, you know, the Deltones. So I said, let me see what you've got. Come on upstairs. So we put an intern in the box office. She came upstairs and she showed me her audition. And I said, you know what? It is short, but it's good because you make one joke on a character and then you move on. And, you know, he gets it. He gets the joke. You move on. So I think you should go up. But she was like, oh, Charlotte, don't. If I'm not ready, please don't. I was like, really? I think you're ready. You know, and she was so scared. Sure. And I put her up and uh, she got hired. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And do you ever have, I mean, have, have there been a lot of people where you just go, how the hell did that one not get through? Oh, all the time. Oh, all the time. Because they're always looking for something perhaps you a little. You never know what they're looking for. It doesn't mean, you know, there was a time when he had to audition, uh, one of the producers told me this, uh, Steve Carell and Steve Colbert and Will Ferrell at the same time, you know. And right. He knew that he probably knew they were all brilliant. He probably knew they were all going to be stars, but he knew what he needed. And right. He needed a Will Ferrell. Right. You know? So it's not, yeah, again, it's it not who's mean, the best yeah, or the funniest. It doesn't mean these people the... aren't good. And he always, and so do the producers, they always say, Sharna, once again, brilliant auditions, amazing people. Your people are amazing. He sent me the most beautiful, huge thing of flowers a few weeks ago and said, Thank you for taking care of us. Your people are just so great. I'm so proud of you. Have you ever spoken to him at, at any kind of length to get yeah, a sense of what he Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, um a few weeks it was about a month ago he was here and um he'd only been to the Clark Street place, so he's never seen this place. Oh, okay. So uh, at first it was kinda cute because before he came his producers were there, I said, I can't wait to give Lauren a tour and she goes, No, you don't give Lauren Michaels a tour. You just bring him to his seat and leave him alone. I was like Oh, okay, because he always seems so nice and friendly. And um, he walked in and he looked around and he went, Sharna, what did you do? And I said, can I give you a tour? He said, yes. And he took my hand and we walked around and he said to me, 
I remember our first time I met you was like in a basement and that was Papa Milano's. I said, yeah. And he goes, look what you've done. Oh my God, look what you've done. Yeah, we talked. We talked about my movie. He said he's willing to co-produce it. He's a, he's a wonderful man. He's it's so It's funny. Nice. You hear so many different things I know. about him. I know. And uh, then the next day he sent me flowers and with a lovely note. And I know that it was from him because... I do. There were times he doesn't come, and I do this with producers, and I never got flowers before. And I teased one of his producers, saying, "Get some class, man. How come I never got flowers from you before?" I mean, it's amazing so, how long he's been doing that. Yeah, yeah, he's been doing it a long time. He has, but uh, you know, he's got talented people. It's hard. It's hard to produce comedy every week, a show every week. It's oh my hard. god, yeah, especially a show like that with so many moving parts. Yeah. I mean, I, I sometimes wonder on that show. I, I when I turn it on now. You know, I, I was looking at some of the old, old episodes, and then I turned on more recently. There's so many people that you don't have that same kind of connection right. to a cast. And I think it's by design now because they don't want to live or die by those, mm -hmm. whatever, six or yeah. eight people. And then there's some you just never get to know. Yeah, and yeah. It's, so that feeling that you had, what, what it was in the beginning. It was just a tight six. Yeah, yeah. now regardless of whether it was it, the best it's ever been or the writing was always the... I don't, you know, you could argue that all day, but... But your connection right. to everybody on the show was different, I think. Right. right. And it allowed them to kind of be more in your living room. You know, now that <laughs> the lit of names that just, it goes on, yeah. those credits go on forever. Yeah. That um, must be because they don't really want to live or die by half it dozen. It could be, plus different people do different things. Like some, one guy was supposed to maybe do more video, like, you know, some people are into more of the videos, some are into more of this, you know, so you never know. Right, that's true. Thinking, you know, and they probably have more money than they had back then, so they could hire a few more people and get people. I think the, I think the concept is to maybe get people ready, like you have your featured players and your, you know, uh, some that aren't officially hired full-time yet, you know, so right. kinda, it's like, can they step into the role? Are they going to be able to take over the, you know, Terran role to sure. role and if they can't if they aren't then they get fired but you know it's sometimes because they don't get that much play time you yeah. don't get that sense of them but right it's hard to know yeah. it's hard to connect with them i mean they bill murray took a long time to to connect right. with people and that was at a time when you know at least he had a little bit more of a chance to right. be seen god you know everybody loves bill murray the book that that is kind of you know the the bible of this Thank the you. truth in comedy you know it's funny because I, I often because i work with dave on a lot of different things and i'm just did a little thing with he and tj and they're very quick to um it, it was funny because i had these conversations before i read the book mm -hmm. um v vigilant about the idea that what they're really after is something true more than thereafter laughs. Right. And TJ made the point, actually in an interview in an episode that we did a while ago, um, he made the point, because I'd, I'd come to see the show the night before, and, and they were really funny, and they seemed to be tickled by how funny they were. And I said, you know, seemed to me like, are there, is there, are there certain nights when you lean into the comedy? Because it seemed to me like last night, it was about the laughs. And he said, well, you know, I think if you look back if, at a transcript of what went down, that there wouldn't be a lot of jokes in there, that most of the laughs would be laughs of recognition, that things that only are funny because, because you recognize because them as something it's, it's, that you, yeah, well, that is real. That's exactly right. I mean, the, 
don't don't be confused to think that just being truthful means you can't be funny. We're not saying we don't want comedy. We're not saying we don't want funny shows. Right. <clears throat> but we think, and I say we, we, David, TJ, because Dave is a disciple of Dell too, as I am. Sure. We think that the humor comes out of the truthfulness of the situation. The reason they're getting laughs is the incredible interaction. I watched them last night, and some of the lines that got the biggest laughs are not jokes. But they were just such funny things that a character, that a person said to another person. There was a, a, a scene last night where this girl, TJ was playing the girl, uh, was really being kind of stupid. It was a girl that he, Dave was dating. And she, her questions got stupider and stupider. And finally Dave said, you know, I'm going to take this opportunity to break up with you. You know, it was just so funny. But it wasn't a joke. If right. I said to you, hey, listen to this, I'm going to take this opportunity. You know, it, it's not so funny. But... He, it was hysterical because of you watch this man being horrified when he realized how dumb this girl is. He goes, yeah, I'm going to take this opportunity to break up with you. Um, so they play truthful characters. And um, that's what Del was saying. Del taught us to bring those real slices of life to the stage. Man's inhumanity to man. I mean, there were times when a scene isn't funny. And I'm not talking about T.G. and Dave. But it could be horrifying or sad or heartbreaking. And that's our job, too. It isn't just being funny. It's to make people think, to make people feel. Um, I, I remember a show with Adam McKay, and it's actually in my book, Truth and Comedy, which is now in Chinese and Spanish, by the way. I should have brought you the book. It's so cool to see it in Chinese. Um, the team was the family, very famous team. And um, the theme was Santa. It was around the holidays. And they did a pattern game in the opening. And the pattern game was about loneliness, theft, suicide, you know, the fact that not everybody's happy at Christmas and on the holidays. And then they did some very poignant, funny scenes based on those ideas. That's how the opening informs the piece. And at the end, to do a group game, they were Christmas caroling. And they're all in a nice little Christmas caroling, like choral formation, and they're like, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. And as they're doing that, Adam pulls out an imaginary gun and puts it in his mouth and blows off his head and falls on the ground. And then they just kind of close in the circle, and they're like, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Then Neil Flynn takes a noose and puts it around his neck and hangs himself, quick fun ways to kill right. himself, and falls on top of Adam. And all these guys, all like about six, seven, six, five, are all finding clever ways during every song. You know, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. And suddenly there's this huge pile of bodies next to Rachel Dratch, little Rachel yeah, sure. who looks like a homeless oh, wife. Oh, I love Rachel. And now she's standing there alone and she goes, Silent night, holy night. It was beautiful as can be as I'm slowly dimming the lights, you know, sleep in heavenly peace. I've got a cold. Sleep in heavenly peace, blackout. And there was just silence. And it was just so sad. And and after a while, you could finally, someone started clapping like, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, I'm sure when they left that day, they gave money to a homeless person. I mean, sure. Just a very sad ending. It was just beautiful. You know, it was all about suicide. And, you know, so it's just like, but they made the audience think. And, right. And, and confounded expectations, right. I'm sure. And a lot of times, too, when you have tense moments, humor comes out of that because it breaks the tension and the audience is so happy to laugh you know so um so i always tell people that it's like let's be truthful you know and you know there's a difference between a creepy character and a creepy improviser so we just uh uh we can play all those uh those inhumanity to man type situations on stage you know we just don't want to really be creepy but we can play those creepy people right um so even here in the book the emphasis is on the truth mm -hmm. even more than the comedy in right. a way, right? Right. Well, it, it really, 
that's where the comedy comes from. If you try to be funny, you get groans. The only way to really be funny is to be truthful, to be truthful to the character, to be truthful to the work. And yeah, it reminds the audience that we share the same world. And that's why they laugh. They see that. They, they're saying something. You know? I, I sometimes think particularly, well, I get this vibe from TJ a lot. Uh, I mean this in a good way, but it's almost a, a religious thing. And I was talking to, you know, Tim Mason. Um, mm -hmm. Tim was talking about the fact that he met his wife Erin here, yeah. you know, and I was talking to Sue Salvi and Paul Grandi. Yeah, all those weddings that came out of I.O. and I families. Mean, I mean, he was saying that. He was saying it's amazing what has kind of come out of all this. I know. And, you know, I, I've worked with a lot of improv people through the years and have totally noticed there's that such a close-knit. My daughter actually just went through I.O. recently. Oh, yeah? And, yeah, and she's doing, like, she's with a group, and they do a show at the back of a bar called Gideon Wells Pub on Monday nights, like, doing that same kind of thing. And they've been doing that for, like, the last year. And it's, it's for her, created such a great outlet for her creativity and also such a, uh, just, it's interesting to see the sense of community for her. I, and it, it seems unlike almost anything else I can think of in that regard. Because you have to understand, and, and this is what I was trying to say before about the, the family, it is, it's a family, because we're on stage and we don't say no to each other. We take each other's ideas, we make them work. I make you look good. There's no way I, you can look bad because otherwise I look bad. And when you start doing that for each other, when you're taking care of each other, you become this saint-like person and that can't help but fall off the stage. So suddenly you've got all these people who are like, oh, you're doing a show? I'll do lights for you. Oh, you need this? Let me help you. Let me direct this, you know? Um, and everyone takes care of everyone. And it becomes, we really are making better people. We right. really are. And, uh, and then they just go off and teach other people. We're really saving our corner of the world. So yeah, this community builds because it's like, I mean, people don't steal here. You can't believe it. I mean, I, I, I found um, money once on the bar in the old place there was like a couple bucks and I thought well maybe the bartender left it you know and then uh, it was by the coffee pot behind the bar that anyone has access to and a couple of, the next week I was teaching a class and the, the pile of money grew and it was and then I was like Who's, whose money is this you know and then the next week it was like a big pile of money and I was just like whose money is this does anyone know whose money this is and all these different classes are in there all these different rehearsals are in there and then someone said oh yeah well, we rehearse in the morning and we make coffee, so we figured we should pay you like a dollar for coffee, so we just put money up there for coffee. But it's like the fact that no one, there was now like 30 or 40 bucks there after about a month, and it was like, why isn't anyone taking that money? No one's stealing, because it's, it's just, that's just the way the community right. is. I saw an iPhone sitting in a lobby for the longest time, and then somebody walking through going, oh, here's my phone, I've been looking at this forever. It was like, it's just this amazing place where people are just nice. You know, the, the people who are assholes just don't make it. Right. They don't stick around, because... You know, it's like Susan Messing always says, if you don't have nice table manners, nobody wants to play with you. So it just seems to be that only great people stay here, and they're just so wonderful and loving, and and, and they're still like that. Amy Poehler is still like that. But know? it's because the philosophy, it's the philosophy. of it's the place is built on that. And they, exactly. And that's why also a lot of the people from I.O. get work, because when you go to a TV show, you want to work with people who are going to treat you that way, you know? Um, like Seth Meyers, who was from here with his whole cast. It's all people he played with, you know. And I remember um, when Kevin Dorff and Brian Stack were writers for Conan, <clears throat> Kevin called me one day and said, I just want to tell you something because you'll be so proud of us. And I said, what's going on? He said, well, we were um, in rehearsal and we brought 
a scene that we wrote to Conan and he didn't like it. It was too close to some movie that was coming out and he asked us to come up with something else. So we went to the stage door and in five minutes we had something else and he said, this is brilliant. How did you come up with this in five minutes? And he said, we're Fishstick. We're an IO team. And what he meant by that was like, they have such respect. We treat each other as if we're geniuses, poets, and artists. That's our job because we have a better chance of becoming that. So if Brian Stack had an inkling of an idea that what's funny, then Kevin Dorff said, Stack's a genius. If he thinks that's funny, I'm going to add to that and make it work. And then Glazer right. says, well, if they think it's funny, I'm going to make it work. There isn't somebody going, no, I want Conan to see my idea. You know what I mean? Nobody, you know, so in seconds, they're, they're doing what they do on stage here. They're saying yes to each other's ideas. So people want to work with people like that. That's why they keep throwing down the, the rope to other people. Sure. You know, that's why like another person just got hired for Colbert. Um, and so that's that's what keeps happening. You want people who are going to say yes to your idea and to make it work. You make friends here. It's like going back to what we talked about with the marriages and the families. You make friends here for life. People come here and you just can't help but fall in love with each other. You right. just can't help it. You know, there was a, you know, there's all these sexual harassment issues now all over in colleges sure. and theaters and everything. And uh, my HR people said, we have to make rules now. People don't date each other. Performers don't date new performers and teachers don't date students. And I'm like, huh? How is that going to happen? I mean, all the marriages, I can't tell you they've come out of here. I just met with another couple that uh, is going to get married upstairs just a few minutes ago before it was my 2 o'clock meeting. So it's like, how do you tell these people? What, are they going to date people from Whole Foods? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 all, all that's going to happen is people are just not going to tell me who they're dating because it's just you can't help but fall in love with the people that you're performing with. You can't help it. All right, I have one more question for okay. you, and I, if I can find what I was thinking about here. It's in the book. It's in the About the Authors. Okay. Where is it? You were hired by the American Embassy oh, yeah. to work with the Greek and Turkish Cypriots, Cypriots to foster pre peace and agreement in a bitterly divided Cyprus. You traveled to Switzerland to work <laughs> with the particle physicists at CERN who created the large... I mean, what's yeah. going on? I yeah, those are two of the most amazing things. And it's, again, that yes and mentality that uh, there are jobs I will say yes to, though I'm not sure I should have, but although I'm glad I did. Uh, yeah, first I was hired by the American Embassy because President Dentash of Cyprus wanted to join the European Union, and the island's been divided for hundreds of years. Okay. So he had me come down and work with... Um, or the American embassy was hip enough to go, you know, you teach agreement. Can you make these people like each other? And by the way, they don't speak each other's language and none of them speak English. Can you do it? And I was like, yes, of course. So I went down there and um, taught on each side for a while, then got them together and actually created, again, that feeling of we celebrate each other's differences. We are, we are so the same in so many ways. And they laughed and they helped each other and they liked each other. And it was sad. At the end of each night, we'd, they, we'd walk, because we did it on either side. They would walk to the border, wave to each other, and stuff like that. And then finally, at the end, they, we all had a big meeting with the embassy, and they're like, okay, now what? We like each other. What are you going to do now? And he was, they were like, all right, just, just relax. And eventually, the border was raised. Um, <coughs> so how cool is that that the American embassy uh, recognized that this is something that could create peace? We really are saving our corner of the world. And then I got hired by, this is kind of cool, because I'm really into science fiction stuff, and... I saw 60 Minutes, they were talking about the Large Hadron Collider, these people that were doing this work, and this thing is monstrous. It's like 12 miles wide, and it's scary. I mean, you stand next to it, it's like an ant. It's, 
you just think for sure they're going to destroy the world, you know, if you screw up. <laughs> they're looking for the Higgs boson, the God particle, and they're going to create a universe. So I would say to them, you know, and so, well, they called me because uh, well, they have the most brilliant men in the world, but they all want to be right, you know. So can you come down and get them to work together? That, that alone was a whole story, but I did go down and... Um, they kept scaring me purposely, like showing me videos of what would happen if there was a black hole and how the world turns inside out. You know, they love to really screw with me. Um, but they did learn to work together. They liked each other, and they did not create a black hole, so I saved the world. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. That's, I figured we should end on that. <laughs> I think so, too. I mean, you saved the world. I saved the world, man. Well, thank you on behalf of all of us. You're welcome. Okay, many thanks to Sharna Halpern for talking with me. If you haven't been to I.O. lately, or ever, check it out at 1501 North Kingsbury in Chicago. There's stuff going on every night on multiple stages. Just a song before we go. This is Naomi Ashley, joined by, well, me. This is her great song, Lullaby, off her record another year or so. And while I'm at it, mark your calendar for Thursday, December 8th. That's when Naomi and I will host the 7th Annual Ron and Naomi's Christmas Special at the legendary Fitzgerald's Nightclub in beautiful Berwyn, Illinois. Holiday music, comedy, a kid's choir, a fetching Santa's helper doing a hula hoop dance, and much, much more. That's December 8th. Be here before you know it. Okay, I'm Ron Lazaretti. This is Lullaby, and thanks for listening.
wish that I could go to sleep And I just wish that I could go to sleep 